I don't know about you, uh, brothers and sisters, but when I first got saved, I was enthralled by the book of Acts. Whenever I used to uh, read it, I always used to be drawn to the things that were going on. It was as if I uh, wanted to be part of the first century church. I'm sure many of you have had that same experience as me. But it's true, isn't it? When we read the book of Acts, we can't help but get excited about what we read. I mean, if we consider what we've learned over the last number of weeks as the Spirit's been teaching us through John, I think the point will become clear of what I'm trying to say. We've seen, haven't we, that the Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost and the church was born. We've seen Spirit-anointed preaching through Peter and 3,000 people getting saved in one day. We've seen the church walking the way it should walk in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And we saw last week, didn't we, that there was spirit-anointed healing through Peter and John. I mean, when you consider those things, you get excited. How can you not have a, a zeal and a passion for what God was doing in the church in the first century and what he can do today in the 21st century as well? But as I've, as I've been preparing for these verses tonight, these first 12 verses of Acts chapter 4, there's one thing that the Lord has shown me very specifically about these verses. And that is that within the excitement of the beginning of the book of Acts, the Spirit, when he anointed Luke to write this particular section, he wanted to make a specific point. He wanted to bring a reality check to Theophilus who was going to read this document, the first person to do it, but also a reality check to every other Christian that would read it ever since then. And that reality check is the fact of opposition to the gospel, opposition to the message of Jesus, and opposition to what the Spirit wanted to do in the church at that time, and what he wants to do now. And that opposition specifically comes when things are going very well. Now, for the apostles at that time, opposition to the gospel wouldn't have been a surprise to them. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 21, verses 12 to 15, the following, he said, But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you, And persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist." And in those verses, what Jesus was saying to his apostles is basically very simply this. He's saying, look, in the future, when you preach the gospel, people are going to oppose it. You are going to be brought before these rulers, these authorities, and they're going to treat you badly. So for Peter and John, although they didn't know what was going to happen uh, in Acts 4, they wouldn't have been surprised by it. 
And it shouldn't surprise us when we receive opposition, when we speak about the gospel, because we should be preaching the same message that Peter and John preached at that time. But what we're going to see tonight, as we go through these 12 verses, is that the Spirit wants to teach us specific things about when the gospel is opposed and how we are to deal with that. When it comes up in our lives, how are we to respond to opposition? How are we to think about it? How are we to react to it? This is what we're going to see the Spirit teach us through these 12 verses. So, our first section tonight is in verses 1 to 4, and I'm just going to read those again. So Luke writes, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, in these first four verses, what you have been described here is the aftermath of what happened in chapter 3 that we learned about last week. And if you remember, Peter and John, they're going up to the temple at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the hour of prayer, and they come across this lame man, And through the power of the Spirit and through Peter's faith, this lame man gets healed completely. And he goes up to the temple with Peter and John. And so when Peter's there, he begins preaching to the the, the company of people that are there. And he basically says, look, you guys condemned Jesus to death. But even though you condemned him to death, God the Father glorified him and raised him from the dead. Heaven has received him, and he's going to come back one day a second time. And Peter was encouraging and exhorting these people. He says, look, in response to that, you should turn from your sins, believe in Jesus, receive the spirit of the living God within your heart, and wait for his second coming. That was the essence of what he was preaching in chapter 3. And so I want you to imagine that in these first four verses, Peter and John are in the temple, and they've got you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people around them, and Peter's coming to the end of his message. And within that crowd, there are specific people who've been listening to his message, and they're not very happy about what he's said. And those people are introduced to us in verse 1, where we see that the priests, who would have been the men that carried out the sacrifices in the temple, the captain of the temple, who is basically second in command to the high priest, he was a bit like the police officer of the temple, going around with his baton, sort of correcting any error. And the Sadducees, which I'll come on to in a little while, they, who essentially looked after the whole temple, they were not happy about what Peter was preaching. And so they came upon them, which means that these men, they went up to Peter and John in a very intimidating way. A bit like when a thug comes up to you who's been at a football match, who's drunk, who wants to have a fight with you. These guys wanted to intimidate Peter and John. And why did they want to do that? Well, because in verse 2 it says that they were greatly disturbed, or they were grieved, which is what that word means in Greek, that Peter was teaching the people that in Jesus was the resurrection from the dead. They were not happy about the fact 
that Peter was teaching that Jesus had actually risen from the dead and that his resurrection power could be in those who followed him. Now, the reason why they didn't like that was because there was something that linked these three groups of people in verse 1 together. And that thing was that they believed in something which I call Sadducean philosophy. Now, to understand what that is, you have to understand who the Sadducees were that are mentioned in verse 1 and also elsewhere in the New Testament. The Sadducees were basically a group of men that existed in the first century. They were a bit like a political party that we have in our day and age. And they were men from the very high class of Jewish society. They had prominent roles in politics, in sociology, and also in religion. And I guess the most important thing they did was that they looked after the temple. And these men, they had a very strict view of the first five books of the Bible. But what made them stood out in their theology, in, yeah, their theology was that they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And the reason why they didn't believe that was because they thought that at that time, in the first century, they were in the Messianic age. They thought that they, the Messianic age started with the Maccabees about 200 years before that. And so for them, there was no point in the resurrection from the dead. And it was this particular thing about their theology that got on their nerves about what Peter was saying. Because not only was their pride being pricked because Peter was basically saying there is a, res- there is a resurrection, Jesus has been resurrected, but also they were worried. They were worried about the fact that 3,000 people had chosen to follow this resurrected Jesus. They were worried that their power and their authority in the Jewish nation would be hindered. And so what do they do? In verse 3, they lay their hands on them, which means that they literally grabbed Peter and John and threw them into custody until the next day because it was already evening. And the reason they had to do that was because in that day, the temple closed at 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And so if there was any need to make a judgment about a religious affair, it had to wait until the next day. I think you can imagine it was pretty intimidating for Peter and John, this scenario, even though it wouldn't have surprised them. Now in this... Excuse me. Sorry. Excuse me. Sorry about that. Well, um, in this um, situation, that was obviously the devil there. Um, uh, um, in this situation, the Spirit wants to reveal to us the first thing that He wants to teach us about opposition to the gospel, and that's what is the real reason for it. And it's got everything to do with the resurrection of Jesus. You know, the resurrection of Jesus, brothers and sisters, is a very important thing. It's so important that in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14, Paul said that if Christ hadn't risen from the dead, our faith would be futile. Why is that? Why would he say something like that? Well, he would say something like that because of what is written in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where it's when, when Paul's speaking about the gospel, he says, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, 
and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And what that verse teaches us is that when Jesus was risen from the dead, he was declared in in the fullest way to be the Son of God. He was declared to be the risen Saviour, Messiah, the risen God, the God that had been prophesied about in the Old Testament. And because of that, that's why it says in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 that anybody that comes to follow Jesus must believe that he's risen from the dead. Because if you don't believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, you don't believe he's God. You don't believe that he is the risen saviour. You don't believe in the authority of the scriptures. And in a real way, you don't want to submit to the authority of God. And what do we see happening here? We see that these three groups of men, they do not want to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. They don't want to believe that Jesus is God. They don't want to believe that Jesus is the risen Savior. They don't want to submit themselves to the scriptures that had prophesied about the crucifixion and resurrection of the Messiah. They don't want to submit themselves to the authority of God. And brothers and sisters, this is the real reason why people oppose the gospel. It's because they don't want to submit to God. The original opposer, the devil, who may have caused me to uh, throw my water all over the place, way long, long time ago, he did not want to submit to God. He wanted to be God. God kicked him out of heaven. He deceived Adam and Eve. And ever since then, sinful human beings have not wanted to submit to God. That's the sad story of the Bible. That's why when we tell people about Jesus, oftentimes they oppose us. Because we're telling them that Jesus says that he is their God. We're telling them that Jesus says they're a sinner. We're telling them that Jesus says they need to be saved. And people don't like that. And that's why people oftentimes will oppose the gospel message. That's quite sobering for us as believers to, to, in a sense, expect that to happen when we tell people about Jesus. But look at what it says in verse 4. It says, However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. And this is such an encouraging verse because what this is saying is, is that, look, even though opposition may come to the gospel message, God is still going to do things. Do you understand what's happening here? The population of the church has gone from 3,000 to 5,000 in the space of about three hours. That's pretty incredible stuff. Jesus said, I think it's in Matthew 16, verse 18. He said that he was going to build his church and the gates of Hades wouldn't prevail against it. Even if people opposed the gospel message, God is still going to do a work. God is still going to build his church. And that is to serve as an encouragement for you in here tonight. Maybe some of you have been trying to share the message of Jesus with people at your work or in your family or in your friendship groups. And they may be responding a little bit. 
but then you've been opposed in some way. Well, don't be dismayed. Be encouraged. God is still going to do a work in that situation. This verse 4 is to serve as an encouragement for us as a church because we live in a nation that is becoming less godly and the opposition to the gospel is going to grow. But God is still going to do a work. God still wants to save people because he loves people. So let that encourage you. Now, our second section is in verses 5 to 7. And I'm just going to read those verses. It says, And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Anus, the high priest, Cephas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Now this is the next day. So Peter and John have been in prison overnight. And so the next day, there's a group of men gathering together. And that group of men is the Jewish religious leaders, or they were known in the first century as the Sanhedrin. This was a group of about 71 men, and they basically were a bit like a court. Uh, And they made uh, religious judgments about every aspect of the the Jewish religion. They included elders of the tribes of Israel and also people who wrote scripture in that time, uh, which is described in verse 5. They also included the high priest and his associates, uh, whether they were Sadducees or Pharisees, and you see that described in verse 6. But the key thing is that the Spirit wants to emphasize to us in this section that he wants to teach us something through the actions of these Jewish religious leaders. He wants to tell us something about opposition to the gospel. And we see what he wants to teach us in what they say to Peter and John. So Peter and John have come from the prison, and they're set in the middle of these men, and the men say, by what power or by what name have you done this? Now what I want to point out to you is when they say, have you done this, they are referring, according to Peter in verses uh, 9, the healing of the man in Acts chapter 3. So they're actually asking them about the healing that occurred in the third chapter. But what happened the day before was that the Sadducees were aggravated by the teaching of the resurrection of Jesus. They weren't aggravated by the healing of the man. That's very interesting, and it shows us something very specific about these Jewish religious leaders. What happened on the morning was that the Jewish religious leaders gathered together, and they talked about what happened the day before. And I can imagine that the Sadducees were explaining their grievances. And the Jewish religious leaders, they completely rejected the idea of the resurrection of Jesus. To them, Jesus had been crucified. He was in the grave. The idea that he could be resurrected was not even possible. So for them, they rejected that, and they turned their attention to the healing. That's what they wanted to know about. Maybe they thought they could use it for their own advantage. I don't know. But what is happening? What's happening here? 
is that the Jewish religious leaders are rejecting Jesus as Messiah, listen, this is very important, a second time. They, they had already rejected him when they condemned him to be crucified before Pilate. And God, in his sovereignty and foreknowledge, used that initial rejection to allow Jesus to become the saviour of the whole world by going to the cross and by being risen from the dead. And this is the most amazing thing. God, in his love, in his grace, and in his mercy, presents the finished work of the gospel first to the Jewish religious leaders and the Jewish nation who rejected him. Just think about that. How amazing is that, that God would actually allow that to happen? It says in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. To the Jew first and to the Gentile. God was displaying his amazing love, grace and mercy in the gospel by actually presenting it to the Jews. But they're rejecting it. How mind-boggling is that? This is... I have to say, the most foolish thing that they could have done. And this is actually what the Spirit wants to teach through this particular section. It is that opposition to the gospel is foolishness. It's foolish. You know, when you read the Proverbs, you see this thing over and over again in the Proverbs. It says, if you reject the instruction that comes from a godly man, you are a fool. The, 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 the authors of Proverbs say that over and over again. And these Jewish religious leaders, they are being instructed indirectly by the Spirit through Peter to turn from their sin, believe in Jesus, and be born again. And they're saying, no thanks, we're going to reject it. This is absolutely the most foolish thing that any human being can do. And the worst thing is, is they, that they thought they would get away with it. But we know from history that in AD 70, Jerusalem fell. It fell at the hands of the Roman Empire. And that is when the Jewish religious leaders, as, a, uh, as an entity, came to an end. And I believe personally that God was judging those men in AD 70 for their rejection. And it's the same today, brothers and sisters. When someone opposes the gospel, they are being foolish. When they are being instructed to turn from their sins and believe in Jesus, if they reject it, they are being fools. Because they won't get away with it. God will judge them one day. He's not going to allow them to get away with that kind of foolishness. The reason why judgment is coming in this world is because in one sense, of the disobedience of man to the gospel. That is why God is actually going to judge the whole world instead of just one area like Jerusalem. Because man has been given the chance to respond, but because of his sinfulness, he rejects it and he is foolish. So if you're in here tonight and you're considering Jesus for the first time, don't, please don't reject it. Because if you do, you're being a fool. And you will get judged for that one day. 
Now the question is, for us as believers, is how are we to respond to to this kind of opposition? When we see this kind of absolute rejection before us, what are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to, I believe, have the same heart as Jesus when he was on the cross. You remember when he was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. We are called to have that kind of compassion upon sinners that are opposing the gospel. When you're talking to someone and they're opposing Jesus in your face, God calls you to look past that opposition and to have compassion on this sinner before you, the way Jesus did. That's what he calls us to do. Now, that's an incredibly high calling to do that, because it's hard to do that, isn't it? We must be reliant upon God to have that kind of love. And what we're going to see in our last section is how we do that. So in verses 8 to 12, that's our last section. I'm just going to read those again. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, in this section, Peter is responding to the opposition. This is what he's doing. And I think the first thing that that God wants to say to us in this section is that more often than not, when we are opposed, he gives us a chance to respond. That's what he wants to do. If you remember back in Luke chapter 21, what did Jesus say? He said that when these apostles would be brought before these rulers and authorities, it would lead to an occasion to give testimony. God's heart is to give us an opportunity to respond to the opposition so that we can uh, demonstrate something about Jesus to that person. And so therefore, if that's God's heart, we really need to take it seriously about what is the right way to respond to opposition. And that's what we're going to learn about in the rest of these verses. The first thing it says in verse 8 is, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. And so the first thing is very simple. If we're going to respond to opposition to the gospel in the right way, we must do it by the power of the Spirit. We cannot do it in our own strength. We cannot do it in our own intellect. We cannot do it in our own skills that we might have. It must be done by the Spirit. Jesus teaches about this both directly and indirectly in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 12, verse 11 and 12, he says the following. He says, Now when they bring you to the synagogues, And magistrates and authorities do not worry about how or what you should answer for what you should say. For listen, the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. 
You must rely upon the Spirit in that moment that you're being opposed for him to tell you how to respond. But also in John chapters 13, 14, 15 and 16, Jesus is preparing his apostles that he's going to leave the, leave the world. And he basically says that it's good for him to leave. <laughs> because if he leaves, the Spirit will come. And Jesus knew that the Spirit would lead the apostles would comfort the apostles, would enable the apostles to do what he wanted them to do, which was to be witnesses to him. So Jesus places, listen, a high emphasis upon our reliance upon the Spirit when we're dealing with opposition. So if Jesus places a high emphasis on it, we should as well. It has to be by the Spirit. Now I know it says they're filled with the Holy Spirit, And if you want to understand my conviction about what that means, ask me afterwards in the question and answer session because if it was in the the sermon, it would take about 10, 15 minutes to kind of explain that and I don't have the time. So I think it's sufficient to say that Peter was reliant upon the Spirit in this situation. But then let's think about what he says in verses um, 9, 10, 11 and 12. Obviously, in verse 9, he talks about the fact that they're being judged for this good deed that they did to this helpless man, uh, that he's made well. And then, in verses 10, 11, and 12, I don't know if you, well, hopefully you notice this, there is a recurrent theme in those three verses. And what is that recurrent theme? It is Jesus. In verse 10, he speaks about the authority of Jesus, because he's been raised from the dead. He is God. In verse 11, he speaks about the fact that Jesus is the one that these Jewish religious leaders have rejected. He uses there a a verse from Psalm 118, verse 22, where it talks about the stone which was rejected by you builders. And that's teaching that in the Old Testament period, the Jewish religious leaders were the builders of the house of Israel. They were supposed to help the house of Israel uh, grow in their relationship with the Lord. They rejected the Messiah, the stone that was to come, but even though that was the case, he still became the chief cornerstone. And if you want a more detailed explanation of that, you can listen to the message I did on 1 Peter chapter 2, where I explain it a bit more. That's on the, on the website. And then lastly, in verse 12, he basically talks about the fact that Jesus is the only way to salvation that's given to men under heaven. In these, t- in these verses, it's all about Jesus. That's Peter's theme when he responds to his opposition. Now, should that surprise us? Well, I would say, no, it shouldn't, because Jesus himself said that when the Spirit comes, he will glorify Jesus Christ. And when you survey the Scriptures, <laughs> it is all about Jesus. When we survey the scriptures, we learn that Jesus is our creator. Jesus is our God. Jesus is our Messiah. He is our Savior. He is our King. He is our High Priest. He is the one that's going to come back to reign on this earth as King one day. It is all about Jesus. And the Spirit anointed men throughout the history of the world for hundreds and thousands of years to write scripture that pointed towards Jesus. So therefore, when he anoints us and fills us and overflows in us, what should come out of our mouth is Jesus. 
That is what we should speak. That is what we should say when people are opposing the gospel to our face. Now, for most people, when they're being opposed, when you're trying to share the gospel and someone's really having a go at you, it's very, very difficult to respond in the right way. For many of us, we can stumble, I think, into two types of mistakes. The first mistake we can make is that when we're being opposed, we can basically fear man and we can not say anything. We can kind of windle away and kind of not respond. But the second mistake we can make is we can get self-defensive, we can get arrogant, we can judge people, and we can actually damage the situation even further. That's not what God wants for us. What God wants for us is that when we're anointed with the Spirit, we speak simply Jesus Christ. And there's something in these verses that I think will encourage us to do that. And that is that, listen, even though opposition will come, it does not change anything about Jesus. It doesn't change his authority. It doesn't change the fact that he is God. It doesn't change the fact that he is the only way to salvation. When we, when we are being opposed, I think sometimes what happens is we get worried about the fact that maybe Jesus does change. Maybe that what this person is saying is um, correct. I mean, I was thinking about this example when we were on the suit run a number of weeks ago uh, where Josh and Brent were talking to this, well, they were talking to this one chap and this other guy came in who was pretty rowdy, to be honest. And he was just really going for it. You know, really verbal, really loud. And what he was saying was coming across as being very kind of intimidating. And it was kind of like, whoa, is this guy really correct? You know? And, I, you know, obviously in God's grace, I think we responded to the situation in the right way. But I think actually what would have helped us is realizing that, you know, even though this guy is opposing Jesus, it doesn't change anything about Jesus. (laughs) You know, we still can say to him, look, I know you're opposing Jesus, but Jesus is still God. Jesus is still over you in authority. Jesus still says you're a sinner. He still has died for you on the cross, risen from the dead, and given you the opportunity to respond to him. So let's be encouraged by that. That Jesus does not change, even if he's opposed. Rely upon the Spirit. Let him do the work.